Welcome to The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series from the Washington Post brand studio and TiVo Price. My name is Kevin McCormley, and I'm the former chief content officer at Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine. I'll be your host and moderator. Today's discussion features a roundtable conversation with savvy experts designed to enable listeners to make more informed financial decisions. In sickness and in health, and in joint bank accounts. This episode will provide tips to help any couple about to say, I do, prepare for their financial future together. Experts will answer common questions about merging assets, debt, and savings. My guests include Janet Bodner, editor-at-large of Kiplinger's Personal Finance Magazine, where she writes a regular column about money-smart women, and Judith Ward, a certified financial planner at T. Rowe Price. Welcome to the show, Janet and Judith. My pleasure to be here. Thanks. It's great to be here. The purpose of today's discussion is to help couples better understand their financial options and opportunities. So let's get right to it. What topic should you discuss before you get married to make sure you are on the same page with your soon-to-be spouse? Oh, just about everything. (laughs) I think, first of all, you need to talk about money management styles. I think this is something that couples just don't think about. I mean, you may be going through life balancing your checkbook, checking online every day where your money is and how it's going out and how it's coming in, and this is the way you roll. And then you marry someone who doesn't care at all. You know, it just kind of leaves it up to chance. And so I think that's kind of where you start. And then you branch out into other topics, including things like debt how much debt you're bringing to the relationship, how you're going to join your money, lots of other things. What do you think, Judy? Yeah, I absolutely agree. A lot of couples now we see, especially millennials, are marrying later in life and they're waiting till their career is established, a little financially secure, so they may be a little more independent and bringing, like you just said, those money habits to the table and now they have to share with another person (laughs) and look at things from a household perspective. Well, What are the financial benefits, if there are any, of getting married? What's on the plus side here? Well, I would say the primary benefit is that now you have the potential for two incomes to support a household. At the same time, expenses do not necessarily double. So there's more of an opportunity to build wealth and to improve your lifestyle compared to a single person. And the two incomes give you more flexibility to absorb financial shocks assuming that the household is managing their finances appropriately. And then even if the spouse doesn't earn income, they're contributing services to the household that a single person might have to pay for or figure out how they're going to do it with their own time. So that's some of the benefits, including some tax benefits, maybe more choices in health care, inheriting assets, and then later on in life, Social Security benefits. So there are a lot of benefits to being married. I would say a downside... <laughs> might be that if your financial habits are incompatible or one spouse's financial behavior could really bring down the entire household. That's a a downside. So you have to choose your partner (laughs) wisely. But some good news is that, as I mentioned, we see that the divorce rate has actually come down Hmm. with millennials waiting to get married. So hopefully their marriages will last longer and they'll live happily ever after. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) Janet, upside, downside? Well, I totally agree that putting together two pots of money and two financial philosophies really gives you the opportunity to build more assets and also to retire together at some point. I think one of the downsides is that things can get more complex because you have, again, two money management styles, perhaps two jobs, two sets of benefits at work, that sort of thing. And you have to merge those and that can be complicated. And another thing to keep in mind is that it's kind of easy to lose yourself in a relationship like this. You know, you may have your own goals 
things that you want to accomplish financially. And when you're merging things together, it's easy to kind of give the responsibility to someone else if you're too busy to manage it. And that can be very helpful, but you really have to stay on top of things because otherwise, again, you need to be, you know, the captain of your own ship, even in a relationship. And that's one of the challenges, I think, to merge your money and that still maintain some independence. Jenny, you mentioned earlier bringing debt to a marriage. Uh, one thing before people get married, should they compare their credit scores? Should each potential spouse put everything on the table where they stand? I think so. Financial advisors and probably Judy would say that this is a really good thing to do. Of course, this sounds like a very unromantic thing to do, (laughs) but it makes a lot of sense because you learn a lot about your potential spouse. Not only do you know what their credit score is and what that says about their credit situation, but it does tell you a lot about how they manage their money. Because, again, if they have a good credit score, then they probably balance their checkbook or go online every day to see where the money's going. And so you get a little bit more idea of how they're managing their finances, which may carry over into the rest of their life. So you kind of get an idea of the type of personality of the person that you're marrying, as well as the financial habits of that person. Judy, how does one spouse's credit score affect the other credit score when they're merged together with a marriage? Well, some of it still stays separate. So you're not legally bound to pay off your spouse's debt. At the same time, you can't ignore it. It needs to be part of a shared financial objective. It's when they purchase things on debt together that the credit scores matter. Well, yeah, the credit score itself is tied to your Social Security number, so it doesn't really change in and of itself. And so it's a good idea when you get married to maintain credit in your own name, have your own credit cards, have other types of credit that you get on your own. Some people that I've talked to in my career, some experts have said, don't ever merge, don't ever take on joint debt unless you need to. A mortgage would be a perfect example of that. But otherwise, just keep everything separate. And I think that's something to to keep in mind when you're getting involved in the relationship to begin with. Any tips on how each spouse can help deal with the debt the other one brings to the marriage? Any, any tips on who pays off whose debt? Or do you take on the debt of your spouse when you get married? Not unless you do it voluntarily signing up for it. So I would avoid that at all costs <laughs> unless you have some agreement there that this is how we're going to get together and pay it off. I think you need kind of a plan to pay it off. Some couples say, well, we're going to attack our debt if the debt is substantial or even if it's not, even if they just want to start with a clean slate. Let's each person pay off his or her own debt before we get married and everything will be fine then. But how do you deal with this enormous student loan debt that so many people have coming out of school and, and going into a marriage? I mean, if, if one spouse has $100,000 of student loan debt and the other doesn't, it seems difficult to imagine that you're just going to say to your husband or wife, well, that, that's your problem. You deal <laughs> with it. And how do you have this joint entity? I would go to what Janet said earlier is that you need to have a plan of attack as a household as to how you're going to deal with the debt. And it could be that you're going to cut spending or you're going to make other sacrifices as a household in order to pay down that debt. And you've got a plan for it, bringing especially student loan debt into the marriage or into the household. Time bound it because you don't want to lose sight of your other goals. There's some things you don't want to put on the back burner in order to just completely 
get rid of all the debt as soon as you can. It sounds like you both think it's really important to keep separate financial lives, but does it ever make sense to, to merge bank accounts? Should a married couple have a joint account? What's your advice on that score? Oh, definitely. First of all, it's a it's a very personal thing. And as Judy alluded to, I think millennials think of this a little bit differently than older couples do. I think older couples tended to merge all their finances, or at least their checking accounts. Now, not debt. I'm not talking about debt now necessarily, but just the money management, the day-to-day money management. It all goes into the household pot, and the bills are paid from that pot. Nowadays, that's not so common. There might be a merged pot to cover the household expenses, but then each spouse would have a separate pot of money to use for his or her own expenses just to have an amount of money that they have control over and they can use. And I think that seems to be a trend among younger people. Would you agree with that, Judy? I would agree. And I've also seen this a lot with couples who don't have children. So they've been independent their entire lives, and then they marry and they choose not to have children. So they feel like they kind of remain independent. I think what's important is that even if you have this independent in terms of the financials, you still need to make decisions at a household level to have shared goals. So you understand what are you trying to achieve and what are you trying to attain. And the way you get that, whether it's a what's mine is yours or what's mine is mine or yours, mine and ours, you, you need to find the system that works for you. Thank you. I know this is a sticky subject. Who do you think should consider a prenuptial agreement setting out how you're going to unwind your finances in the event of a divorce? Well, nowadays, I think a lot of couples do this. Judy said earlier that the divorce rate has been going down. And I'm wondering if, A, part of that is that people are getting married later in life, and B, they perhaps are considering prenuptial agreements because they're bringing more assets to the marriage. Maybe somebody has already started a business. Maybe they already have a big savings account, you know, or a big brokerage account. And so they have assets to protect. And so they're they're thinking more along these lines. Also, and certainly in the case of a second marriage, I think it's really critical because you do have assets that you're bringing to the marriage, plus your assets could include a family (laughs) and children and grandchildren and that sort of thing. A lot of the financial advisors that I talk to say that they talk about prenups even with younger people who are going into a first marriage, but certainly with second marriages, it's something that folks should consider. I agree. You know, I come from a generation where it was unheard of to have a prenup. And yet, unless you were extremely wealthy and had a, a lot of assets that you were bringing to the marriage. But I think nowadays, it's just it's a, an added layer of protection for something you've worked hard for. And the other thing that is important is we all think you're going to get married and live happily ever after, and that doesn't always happen. And sometimes there's, you know, divorce, and this is a way to protect you should that happen. I think it's being viewed differently now. It's not like it was in my generation where like, oh, who needs a a prenup? Because we're starting from nothing and we're building our our life together. I think people are, if they are bringing assets to the marriage, it's probably a good idea. How can couples reconcile their approach to saving or investing together? If they bring different attitudes into the marriage, how do they reconcile those uh, to have a smooth path as they go through life? Well, again, I go back to having these shared financial objectives and determining the best way to reach those objectives. If you're getting married, hopefully, as Janet mentioned earlier, you should be already having these conversations about 
how are you in terms of your financial habits? What have you achieved so far in life? And together, what are you hoping to achieve? One way to do this is also to not only come up with the shared financial objectives, it it might take compromise as well, but communication is just the key. You really need to communicate about these things and do come to agreement on what your shared views are in terms of what you want to attain financially. I was going to say, Kevin, in thinking about this question, when you're talking about saving and investing, you're talking about very often tax advantage savings plans, like you're talking about your retirement plan at work or you're talking about Roth IRAs or IRAs. What occurred to me is that even if there's a gap in income between both spouses, each of those spouses should really be maximizing those accounts that they have access to. So if you're both working and you both have access to a retirement account at work, you should be taking advantage of that account. And even if one person is earning twice as much as the other, it doesn't matter because you're still taking advantage of your plan. You can put both of these together at some point in the future when you're retiring together. But if something should happen to the relationship, you have your own money. Again, it's one of those areas in which you have to look at the various financial vehicles that you have access to and take advantage of them, even if there is a disparity in income between the two of you. Good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. And I would would add that, you know, in my own household, I've been the primary earner for many years, especially for retirement. I've had access to a retirement plan, and my husband has not. So I've been probably the main earner in terms of our retirement savings. But the way I look at it is it's not my money, it's our money. Mm -hmm. Because we have a shared vision for retirement, even though I've kind of taken on the role of saving for retirement. At the same time, I share it all with my husband. I'm still old-fashioned and I get paper statements at home (laughs) because I want him to know how we're tracking towards our retirement goal. It's important for him to know. And I think that's important in any marriage or relationship is you have to know what is going on in terms Mm -hmm. of the household finances and the savings and investments. Yeah, that's great. You've got all of this financial stuff going on. Any tips on how to make sure you get that started and keep it going regularly to keep both spouses in the loop on on everything they need to know financially? So here's an idea. (laughs) How about a finance Friday date night? (laughs) So set a time aside that you plan to go through these things with your spouse because what's, I think, different today is that we do so much online. We pay our bills online. We check our statements online. We look up balances online, and it's our own personal device. So we may not be apt to share that with our spouse. And there is this division of labor a lot of times between spouses, and typically – The woman is taking care of the day-to-day finances, and the man is taking care of the investments. So I say you have to know what's going on across because chances are, and this is especially important for women, if there's a divorce, if their husband passes away, you know, I call these the disruptors of your financial life, divorce, unemployment, death of a spouse, they need to understand what's going on in terms of the finances. So I would say to figure out a way that you're going to share this information with each other so that everyone is on board with what's going on with the household finances and their investment and wealth building. I'm going to steal a quote from someone that I interviewed for one of my columns, and she said that it is fine to delegate financial responsibilities, but don't abdicate responsibilities. Mm, That's right. And I think that's really true. Sometimes it takes a third person, a third party, an outside party. If you really are having trouble talking about this with each other, spouse to spouse, then maybe you need an outside person to kind of bring you together. But, you know, just taking small 
steps. And I think even if you're if you're the one who's in charge of paying the credit card bills, then your spouse should really know where that money is going. I interviewed someone else who told me she was in charge of paying the credit card bills, and her husband left that responsibility to her. But one thing he did was he looked at the statements every month, and she said he wasn't trying to catch her out or anything. He just looked at them. And just knowing that there was this second pair of eyes looking at the statement made her more cognizant of where the money was going. And so just little things like that can really make a big difference. Okay, great. How can couples best plan for or manage different kinds of risks that they're going to face as they move through life together? Well, I think, first of all, you can start with an emergency fund. That's the first line of defense if something goes wrong, if you lose your job or if you need a new roof on the house or that sort of thing, and that's that risk. Another risk, of course, is having enough life insurance, and this is where both spouses could come together because even if you're a stay-at-home spouse, you are contributing enormously to the financial running of your household, which would be a severe handicap if you were not there. So that's something to keep in mind. And one thing that I always talk about with insurance and even retirement policies, something that people don't always think about is just being the beneficiary of your spouse's insurance policies, being the beneficiary of retirement accounts, that sort of thing, so that if, God forbid, something happens to your spouse, you're covered. Make sure that you are covered. Having a will and a guardian for your children is really important. All of those things, and you can tackle them one thing at a time. You don't have to be overwhelmed by them, but they can all help to mitigate the risks that you're going to face in your life. I totally agree. I think the first line of defense is in a emergency reserve. And we typically at T. Rowe Price talk about having three to six months of expenses in this emergency reserve. If it's a two-income family, if it's a one-income, you might want to lean towards six months. And then the other things that naturally hedge against these risks is life insurance, disability insurance, health care coverage, the estate planning, as Janet mentioned. You want to make sure you have a will. And then also there's powers of attorneys and healthcare directives. There's a lot that can help with these risks, and some are very easy and affordable to attain. Okay, that's great. Now, here's a fun challenge we try for each episode. We call it keeping you up at night. I'll give you a hypothetical situation that people often don't feel confident about, and you respond to it with your perspective. And we, we sort of touched on this as we've gone along, but here's the challenge. It can be uncomfortable to discuss spending, saving, and investing habits. How do you start and continue that conversation all through your life stages? Well, as far as talking to your children, and this is something that I've written a lot about during my career, if you start talking to your kids when they're young about money, it's just something that builds throughout their lives. You're kind of used to having these conversations. They don't feel strained or stressful. And so when they get to be older and you have bigger things to talk to them about, like perhaps your own future and how you expect to live in your retirement or how much you have to fund your retirement, those conversations come a little bit easier, I think. And if they don't, you can do a couple of things. I've mentioned this before. Having a third party bring you together, either with your adult children or with your parents, can be very, very helpful if it's it's a very stressful conversation. But also just, and this I think works too, taking advantage of things that happen that kind of stimulate this sort of conversation. I recently spoke with a friend of mine who lost her husband unexpectedly, and uh, he happened to be a computer geek. And in her living room, she now has literally stacks of hard drives that 
she cannot get into because he did not tell her what the passwords were. She did not know the passwords to a lot of their accounts. She had to actually hire an IT person from her work to help her break the codes on all this, literally. So first of all, she's had an experience there. This has stimulated my husband and I to say, gee, do we know where our passwords are? We try to stay on top of this, but life intervenes, and so you don't always know what's going on. But are we up to speed on all this? And is it, are we at a point in our lives when we should share this information with our adult children? So we're having that conversation now as a result of an experience that we had with a friend of mine. Okay. Judy? I've seen both sides of the coin. Being a financial planner, when I was raising my kids, I was very open and transparent with our finances. And to what Janet was saying, we had conversations all the time. And I call them money moments, especially with younger kids. You look for those opportunities to have these money moments where you can talk about finances in a more comfortable way. So they got to see their college savings accounts. I shared the numbers with them. So we were planning for college. I actually took them into a bank and they opened their own savings account. They had Roth accounts when they were younger. And now they're adult children. And exactly what Janet was saying, my husband and I just went through the process of updating all of our estate planning documents because we hadn't done it since the kids were young. <laughs> and I've shared all the documents with them. I've attached account statements that have the phone numbers of all where we keep our money and said, here's the packet. That And, you know, we'll talk about it as we have the chance to because they don't live at home anymore. But at least now they know where everything is and how to get to everything. At the same time, like my mom and dad, they didn't want to share any financial information with me, even though I was a financial planner. And it wasn't until my dad passed away that my mom reached out and said, I think I need some help. So not that we want that to be <laughs> the reason people reach out to their aging parents, but I think that's really, really important for the adult children to try to reach out to their aging parents and see see if they can break through to understand what their finances look like. And those could be some difficult conversations and maybe just say, I know this is difficult, mm. but I'm looking out for your best interest. Let's, we need to start having these conversations. Okay. Thank you. We've got to start wrapping things up. But before we go, we have one last segment that we like to call, If You Remember One Thing, where we offer our subject matter experts the opportunity to reflect on one of our key takeaways from this episode. Janet, what's your one thing? Well, I think I've changed my one thing during the course of our discussion. I have so many things. But we've talked a lot about having common goals as being really key to a relationship. And what I would say is don't assume automatically that your spouse is on the same page as you are. If you're getting married for the first time and you're young, perhaps you want to save money to buy a house. Your spouse wants to take time to travel. You really need to know this. At the opposite end, when you're ready for retirement, perhaps you would like to move to live closer to your grandchildren, and your spouse says, no, I have a lot of connections right here. The last thing I want to do is pull up roots and leave. I'd rather travel around the world. And you would be surprised at the number of couples that don't agree about these things. And so I think it's really critical to make sure you're on the same page as far as your goals are concerned, from which everything else can then flow. Judy? I totally agree. I wrote down three things, communication, compromise, and commitment. So if you can approach maybe your marriage that way and having the shared financial objectives and transparency and work towards that, because it, it may not be natural to be sharing your financial information with each other if you have this division of labor, but that is so important for the shared financial objectives. And as Janet said, making sure you're on the, on the same page. 
Okay, thank you both. A lot of great information here. It was our pleasure. Thank you. And we thank you so much for listening. That's it for this season of The Confident Wallet. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. This episode of the Confident Wallet podcast series is provided for general and educational purposes only and is not intended to provide legal, tax, or investment advice. This podcast episode does not provide fiduciary recommendations concerning investments or investment management. It is not individualized to the needs of any specific benefit plan or retirement investor, nor is it directed to any recipient in connection with a specific investment or investment management decision. Investors will need to consider their own circumstances before making an investment decision. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. The views expressed at the time of this presentation may have changed since that time. T. Rowe Price, the Bighorn Sheep Design, and the Confident Wallet, collectively and or apart, are trademarks of T. Rowe Price Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. The trademarks displayed throughout this podcast are the property of their respective owners. T. Rowe Price Investment Services, Incorporated.